We have a very distinguished audience here today, and uh, it's wonderful to see everybody networking and getting to know each other, because I'm sure you'd all agree that we care deeply about our country and we want to keep moving it forward. And so today we're going to talk about a lot of things, the state of our country, the state in many uh, respects, the world. And we also want to talk about a person named Conrad Black. And we're delighted that Lord Black is with us. And uh, this is going to be uh, quite a far-reaching conversation, isn't it, Conrad? Yeah, that's up to you, Dad. Okay. <laughs> well, we've known each other and we consider not only Conrad Black a friend of Frontier, but also a friend personally. So I really do appreciate that friendship. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense, and innovation. It's urban. It's rural. It's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed, because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Well, look, Lord Black, you um, had a very interesting life to date. In Best terms, is yet to come. <laughs> in terms of both business, when you think of it strategically, in terms of um, leading um, many different business enterprises on a very large scale, you've also led one of the largest media conglomerates, uh, I think one of the, the third largest in history at one point. The newspaper company. The yeah. newspaper company, Hollinger. Uh, you've also been an author of a number of very interesting best-selling books from, as I recall, Morris Duplessy to FDR to Nixon. That's probably one of my favorite books on, on Nixon. And uh, also uh, The Manifesto, A Vision for Canada, uh, Return to Greatness. And so you've walked in a lot of areas and you continue to be an outspoken voice. How many columns are you featured in these days, including the Epoch Times? Uh, th three a week. So as we look at that broad career, what, what would you say to someone who says, well, how have you been so successful? Is there a, a core secret or principle that's enabled you to have success in so many areas of life? It's a very flattering question, but look, there are lots of successful businessmen and, and, and you know, I wouldn't, uh, I, I would say I, wa I was, if, I'm, if I may, I was a good newspaper publisher because we raised the quality of the publications and we made quality profitable. It is a myth that to be, in the old days when the newspaper industry was really a buoyant industry financially, which it is not now, but in those days it was always a fraud and a cop-out to say that in order to make money in it, you had to produce mediocre or scurrilous newspapers. That was never true. And, and uh, the fact is, anyone who reads a broadsheet newspaper, I'm, again, I'm going back 20 or 30 years when it was a much stronger industry, anyone who did was what's called an ABC1 reader, a high education, high income reader, exactly who the advertisers want, and they don't care within reason what the cover price is. So if you really put quality in the paper, you could raise the cover price a bit, and, and, you, and you could sell it to the advertisers because these are the people I want. These are the people with the high incomes. And, and I, it, it, it was really not a well-managed industry because very few people could 
blend together the requirements of producing a good newspaper product. It's not like producing toothpaste or something. You've got to be very careful. You know, there's subtleties culturally about how you do it and, and sociologically. And, and, and combine that with good management. I mean, Rupert Murdoch has done it and, and a few others, but very few. Very interesting historical perspective. I want to talk a little bit more about the state of media, but I did want to shift to the topic of Canada as a nation. You've, you've reflected an awful lot about its history. Can you tell us more about the founding of Canada as a significant Western nation and the genius that went into that? Or was it just all an accident? No. No, it was not an accident. And <clears throat> I think and I, I, I would be surprised if many of you disagreed with me. I don't think as a people we know our history well. And I think we have in some respects been, not deliberately, but accidentally, somewhat intimidated by our proximity to the United States. Uh, the fact is, Canada had to begin as a French operation, otherwise it would have just been assimilated into the American colonies. And it had ultimately to cease to be French because the strategic division in Europe was the French had the great army and the British had the great navy. So the British took what they wanted across the seas and the French only got Britain's leaving. So the British took India and North America and France got North Africa and Indochina. They're important places, but they're not comparable. And, uh, but it had to cease to be French and become British at the time that the Americans ceased to be British. Otherwise, again, we would have been brought into the, you know, sort of sucked into the United States into, as they became. And we needed the protection of the British from the Americans, and by the skin of our teeth, we preserved Canada in the War of 1812. Um, uh, 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 but And we, we needed that so we couldn't agitate for our liberty too vigorously or the British would have washed their hands of us and said, well, this is just more trouble than it's worth. We'll sell it. It was, a, it was very few people in this vast area. We'll just sell it to the Americans. They want it anyway and they can, they can pay for it somehow, you know. And uh, so it, it took a great skill, not evidently heroic skill, but great skill for Baldwin and Lafontaine and MacDonald and Cartier to convince the British that Canadians should have the same civic rights as the British and the Americans, so we should elect our leaders. Uh, and, and, and it was very skillful the way they did it. And we managed to turn this to account by saying to the British, look, you see there is a problem here, you have to give us our rights, but you also see that the great majority of Canadians are loyal to the British Crown, so you've got to reward us. I and mean, a lot of our people, a very large number of them, are, are people who fled the U.S. because they were loyal to the British Crown. It, it, was, it, it isn't easy to portray it like Patrick Henry saying, give me liberty or give me death or Paul Revere's ride. Mind you, three quarters of American uh, uh, you know, hagiography in their, in their history is just rubbish. They're great men, we're very great men, but a lot of these secondary figures are nothing to write home about. Uh, but, but the Americans have, as we all know, the genius of the star system in every field. So they, some of their stars really are, and some of them are frauds, but that's, that's America. But it, we had to do it quite differently. And we got into this habit of being always quieter and convincing ourselves we were kinder and gentler than the Americans. I, I wouldn't put 
too much freight on that wagon. In some ways, yes, in some ways not, but I think we're much more envious than the Americans. But, but that's how we had to proceed, and, and it wasn't easy. And it is easy to think it was easy, but it wasn't. It, was, it took great skill, and our statesmen were very skilled. Even a man like Mackenzie King. Now, this, this, those of you who have, or, I, there'd be very few people in the room who would remember him, but I'm sure many of you know a fair bit about him. But nowadays, he is, you know, he is an absurdly inadequate figure in the company of Winston Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt and Charles de Gaulle. I mean, and he wasn't them. I'll, I'll, I'm not going to present, you know, pretend. I'm not going to try and sell you the idea. He was a peer of those three, but. He was an extremely intelligent man, and he was very successful. And he got us through World War II without the, the terrible abrasions we had in World War I, and we mounted a tremendous war effort in this country. For a country of only 11 million people, at the end of the war, we had the third navy in the world. Now, I'll, I'll admit that that's because the, the Americans and the British sank all the other navies, but still, it, it, was, uh, it, it, was, uh, it, it was a terrific performance and an almost entirely volunteer performance. And, you know, we are now a country that has a population almost identical to what France had in the latter 19th century, which is, you know, fin de siècle. It's often thought of as the golden age of France, a time of Victor Hugo and Emile Zola and Renoir and great, great artists, great writers. Uh, just a, uh, where Paris was a, the city of light. We we mustn't deceive ourselves. We don't have quite the um, attainments culturally and not the historical background of France. But this could be one of the world's greatest countries, and it wouldn't take more than five years of serious government before it was recognized as that. The world is ready for us, but are we ready for it? I say we are, but I, you know we're all waiting for it. Wow, what a terrific challenge. <laughs> In terms of Canada, we have everything going for us, coast to coast to coast, on so many fronts, including incredible people. Um, one of the measures or marks of a country, as you know, is per, per capita GDP the gross domestic product, um, how are we doing? The last time well, I Well, comparatively not well. I mean, you know, it is still a, one of the world's relatively rich countries, but I think we're, I mean, I'm one of the more venerable people in the room, but when I was young, um, we were only behind the United States. If you, if you leave out, uh, in those days, tax haven states like Monaco, which is, you know, there are only a few thousand people there. Uh, and, and nowadays, if, if you leave out tax haven states, there are a few more of them like Luxembourg and, and uh, Petro states like Kuwait or even, I mean, I'd accept Norway as an integrated economy, but really basically oil, small oil producing countries, so the income is very high for the population. It, on that basis, we were, we were only second to the United States when I was young, and we were in that position for a long time. And, and we're, we're only, you know, we have, we're, we have all kinds of countries that are inexplicably ahead of us. I mean, I think we're now 26, where if present trends continue, in the next two or three years, we'll be passed by South Korea, Israel, and the Czechs. Now, you know, I remember, this is how old I am, I remember when the ceasefire was signed in Korea in 1953 after President Eisenhower 
threatened to use atomic weapons on communist Chinese, and they got the message and signed the ceasefire. And at that time, all Korea, the entire peninsula, was a rubble heap. There was, they, they, there, were, there was almost nothing standing. The armies had gone up and down the peninsula. The whole country was destroyed. It was primitive to begin with. They had no sophisticated manufacturing. They didn't, they didn't make a car. They hardly hard, had any cars. Uh, and, and they certainly didn't have shipyards. They, they didn't have anything. And they were about to pass us. Israel, when it was, I mean, I don't remember it, but I was alive when it was founded. And it was, to quote, to give you a quote from Pontius Pilate, it was a land of sand, camels, and Jehovah. And that's all there was in Israel. And look at it now. Now, you know, they, they, they came off a narrow base, so you can, if you do it properly, you can grow very quickly. So it's not a totally fair comparison. But, but the Netherlands is a more prosperous country per capita than we are. As you all know, it's a very small country. It's a lot of reclaimed land. They have practically no natural resources. They have the great port of Rotterdam, but they're industrious people. And it was liberated by our first Canadian army in World War II, and it was at that time a wreck. I mean, the, you know, the, the German and Allied armies had gone right through it, firing heavy ammunition at each other, and the country was terribly heavily damaged. And they have, I mean, God bless them, I admire them for it, but why have they caught us? Why have they been advancing more quickly than we are when this country is, eight, as I was just discussing it with, with the Thor Richardson, of just, you know, just during lunch. Uh, we are a treasure house. We have every resource except tropical fruit. We even grow a few bananas near Niagara Falls. We, are, we, are, we have every resource. All energy, forest products, precious metals, base metals, everything. And we're ashamed of it. And we're losing ground to countries who don't have a fraction of our natural advantages. Did you mention oil and gas? I said energy. <laughs> our leading industry upon which we are, we are, in effect, conducting war from the federal government. It's a, it's, a, it's a scandalous state of affairs. So how do we turn the corner well, and you, move you, this You change governments, don't you? I mean, <laughs> the, the crowd seems to agree with you. I think it's going to happen, too. Um, on that note, um, we are very concerned about a prosperity agenda for this country. So that was a very powerful summation, and it's very humbling, isn't it? to compare to those other nations. It begs all the questions that you ask. Well, I, I'm, I respect all those countries, certainly, but, but they should not be more prosperous than we are. Right. So speaking of prosperity at Frontier, we would say all Canadians have an opportunity to prosper, including our brothers and sisters in the Aboriginal community. And we're very concerned about that. Um, in January, there's a leader of the opposition who is here at Frontier. Mm -hmm. We had a packed audience. That was, you asked me, it was interesting, Conrad, when Peter Hawley asked the question about the size of audiences, who was the largest? Conrad uh, leaned over and asked me, and I said, it was the leader of the opposition. Oh, no, you're, you're right to come out in greater numbers for okay. him than for me. <laughs> okay. I, I so, would have made the same choice. <laughs> but, but in a powerful speech, he did challenge everyone. And this is consistent with Frontier's vision, so we need to get rid of the Indian Act. Of course. And I, I want to salute this organization, uh, David. And you 
in particular, I, I understand Judge Giesbrecht is here, and, and uh, Mr. Clifton is here. The, uh, that uh, book about the Truth and Reconciliation Report was one of the, in fact, I can't think of a rival, but there may have been one, but, but so because I can't think of it, I, I won't go all the way in this, but it is the greatest single contribution I know of that any think tank has ever made to the enlightenment of this country. Uh, and I salute you. Well, thank you. Uh, and uh, if those of you who read the National Post, my piece in the National Post, drawing heavily on uh, remarks you've helped to circulate, David, you in front here, from Jacques Rouillard, emeritus professor from the University of Montreal, uh, to expose this utter fraud, this scandalous self-defamation, a kind of self-directed blood libel that our government has generated that Canada is somehow a nation of genocidists. I mean, this is unbelievable, and we're being criticized by the Chinese who are, you know, the, the, this Chinese communist regime is, in terms of number of people killed, the most criminal in all of history. And they are criticized, and at this moment they have over a million Uyghurs illegally detained, and they've subdued their birth rate by 60%, which is genocide, by the way. And, and, uh, and they are criticizing us in the United Nations for our civil rights record. I am not whitewashing our treatment of the natives. We should have done better. And I think most Canadians would agree with that. But what we were trying to do was assimilate them because we thought that that was what was best for them and what they wanted. We may have been mistaken in some of that. I'm certainly not mistaken in a lot of it. I, I'm not, as I said, I'm not trying to defend everything we did, but to call it genocide? Mm -hmm. It was incompetence. It might even have been racial arrogance of a kind that was quite widespread in the colonial era. But it, 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 almost nothing that we ever did with the native people was other than well-intended. And, uh, and how our government has made us regarded by Amnesty International, or essentially a bunch of commies, though they occasionally do good works, uh, as in, in some measure in the same camp as the, as the Nazis or Pol Pot or the Turkish massacre of over a million Armenians at the end of the First World War. How can our government possibly defend itself for what it did in this respect? It's an outrage. Okay, so in this context... And, and I, I want to salute the Frontier College for leading the, the comeback to get the truth out so that we all can sleep peacefully at night knowing that our grandparents or great-grandparents weren't a bunch of, of Nazis or Nazi equivalents. Well, but, yeah. So, so well said. And at, at Frontier, I'd say we're in passionate, as I think every Canadian is, about trying to get at the truth of history in a balanced way to move towards reconciliation, which is a very ambiguous concept, but if it means prosperity and opportunity for everyone, count everybody in. But what you see now is a lot of claims, even about mass graves. It's, it's awful. And, and so of which not one has been discovered, as you know, and as, right. as you have published. And the people I mentioned are, are, are the ones who've done this. I'm, I'm just echoing what others have said, but I'm trying to get it out there and you know, 
get, get, I, mean, I think the average Canadian, not hearing the counter-argument, right. actually believes that there are thousands and thousands of effectively murdered native children who were got rid of in mass graves that, 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 that were plowed over so they didn't look like cemeteries. No, there's no truth in any of that sense, nothing. Not one scintilla of truth in any of it. Yeah, and, and so this is urgency for action where there should be proper forensic investigation by proper third parties like any other They claim. voted $27 million in June, I believe, of last year precisely to get to the bottom of this thing because you know the, the origin of it was this uh, subterranean radar that d d detected sort of disturbances, you see. That's what they were called. And they could be just anomalies of roots of trees and things. You know, it's only a few feet under the ground. $27 million and they haven't dug up one of them yet. I mean, they, the myth, this satanic myth is far more convenient for the native victimhood industries than actually spending 1% of the money that was voted to do a little digging. You could do it with less than I had to pay two people to dig out a cat that had fallen down a drain pipe in my house. You wouldn't need any more than that, and you could find out if, if there was a grave there. Right. So, so there's urgency <coughs> to get to the truth to this, and, and why is that so important for us as a nation when you think of this strategically, Conrad? The whole question of the status of the natives at the time of the arrival of the Europeans is complicated and it has to be clarified. Unfortunately, I think we are, if we, if we don't do anything about it, we can see the more outspoken native leaders, the, the leaders of the, you know, the militant victimhood advocates progressing towards saying that what the French and British explorers and settlers did coming to Canada was qualitatively indistinguishable from what Hitler and Stalin did to Poland. That they came here, invaded the natives country, took it over and subjugated the natives. And that is bunk. There were 200,000 natives in all of the three million square miles of what is now Canada. The only places where they had permanent structures were in the far west, uh, Vancouver Island, and, and a little bit in the Ottawa Valley. And that was the only place where they had agriculture, where they actually grew crops. For the rest, uh, they, they had no fabrics, they had animal skins, and they were nomads, they moved around. They were tremendously skilled, they were, they were remarkably capable people. But it was, a, it was a Stone Age civilization. They hadn't invented the wheel and they had no written language. And I, I, they're not inferior people. I believe all people are equal. But it was an inferior society. And the settlers and explorers who came here, for all of the barbarities that went on in Europe at that time were emissaries of the civilization of Shakespeare and uh, Leonardo da Vinci and uh, Montaigne and uh, 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 you know the great towering intellectual and cultural figures in, in, in the history of, of the world and and they found a culture where the natives were extremely sophisticated at what they did. They were wonderfully agile. and They'd make these remarkable canoes that could carry much more than their own weight and things. 
but it was a, it was a society that was 5,000 years behind Western Europe. And, we, and there's, there's nothing to be embarrassed about in that, but we shouldn't be papering that over and allowing these people to get away with the idea that we invaded a sophisticated country that was fully adequately populated by natives and just stole their country. There's no truth in that. And, but if we don't state the truth, that is going to become the truth. And, and so, you know, I think we have to say, we have to make the facts plain in a way that is not dismissive of the natives at all, but, but is not overly respectful of the sophistication of the civilization they had because they were isolated in a way that Europe was not. And with that, we, we, have, we have to start all over again. You're right, the Indian Act is rubbish. The numbered treaties, rubbish, throw them all out. And, uh, and your recommendations, I think, are, are, are excellent. I mean, I focus particularly on those who wish to make their way in the life of the country generally must be assisted very generously to do that. Those who want to maintain a native style of living, I, I guess they have that right and we should encourage it, but it, it is, I think you had a phrase in your report uh, of phasing out the, the small <coughs> native communities and, and, and I think we want to amalgamate them, not herding people around compulsorily, but in, you know, incentivizing them to move into larger units so that you know, they are comprehensive and, and have the facilities to, to deal with a community which, you know, in smallish communities like that in the dark of winter can be quite depressive. And, and we all are aware of these problems of alcoholism and uh, high suicide rates and so on. We want to help them out of that too. And those who want to maintain a, a, a native style but with the benefit of, you know, modern appurtenances, we, I think we can work towards that. But we aren't getting anywhere. I mean, the billions and billions we pour out, a lot of it is, goes in, in, frankly, the corruption of some of the officials, native officials. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the, the truism is still there. A lot of these places don't have drinking water that, that you can be confident drinking unless you boil it first. And there's no excuse for that with all the money we put into this. We've just got to do it better. But instead of sitting down with the native leaders, and some of them are outstanding people, brilliant people. I've met a number of them. Sitting down with them and working out something that's fair and generous, and we can all watch it grow and succeed and be proud of it, and be, and be happy for them, uh, we're defining reconciliation as uh, slandering and libeling our own ancestors. Exactly. When well, what kind of reconciliation is that? So, where is this coming from? Is it coming from this movement, this, this form of kind of an ideological revolution? What are your observations of the role of education in terms of what is happening to Canada today? It's very negative. We don't know anything about our history. The history we're taught is this history of guilt and uh, aggression and the evils of colonialism. I think our, the, all of us in the Western world, all our countries, uh, the education systems are, are terribly inadequate. And one of the great ironies of the last 30 or 40 years is we spend more, all of our societies, the Americans, all the European countries, even Japan, we spend more and more and more on education and get less and less well-educated graduates. I was a teacher when I was a guest of the great American people. And um, I, my task was 
to, to help those who had not matriculated from secondary school. And so I'd always start by asking them how far they got in school, and it was always grade 10 or 11. Most of them could not read, and most of them had no idea of how to compose an English sentence. Well, I mean, I didn't like the schools I was in at all. I thought they were sadomasochism shops, but if I couldn't write a basic sentence or read a sentence, I would still, at my age, for the 72nd year in a row, be waiting to get into grade two. I mean, at least they taught me that, you know, and how to add a column of figures. And um, I, I, think, I, think we, I think we have to have a, a form of merit-based teaching and reward the teachers for the performance of the students, but an objectively evaluated performance, not, not a rigged operation where the teachers tell them the questions before they give them the papers to, to you know, to uh, write out. And, and we, and we I, I think basically we have to get rid of collective bargaining in, in, in among school teachers. I think the teachers unions are terribly retrograde. But I, I'd certainly want good working conditions that encourage and incentivize good teaching. Mm -hmm. But I think the teachers unions are, are, are part of the problem. And we saw it in the United States in the COVID thing where they agitated, they, they basically held the children hostage and, and agitated for what amounted to uh, ransom payments before they would go back to, quote, work. And, um, and, and then we have to address the fact that our universities are effectively unemployment deferral operations. <laughs> we, we spend an immense amount of money. I mean, I loved university. I, I, I graduated from three universities, but in fields that, that are genuine fields, they were gender studies, you know? And, and um, we, have to, we have to elevate some of these occupations that we need more people in, like plumbers and electricians and things. I mean, give them a university level designation, but get more of them. And those people who want to who want to study things that, when they graduate, they cannot possibly make a living from, they they can do that if they want, but they're going to have to pay more for it, and they'll have to face some of the consequences themselves of their unemployability. Uh, I mean, we've just got to be more realistic here and require more of ourselves. So, so As a society. So your comments are... And I say this to all our countries. I mean, the British are not a lot... They're better than we are, but not much. Sir? But if we look at education, and I, I think your comments are well said, about the need for performance and, and all the rest, but at Frontier, we'd say there's a cardinal principle that we should be doing, and that would be to fund parents, in the case of minors or children, or fund the student. Don't fund bureaucracies. Quite right empower people to make their choice in education. Do you, so do you like that? Yeah, and, and furthermore, the role of the administrator, both in the schools and in the universities, if you look back at the, you know, remember the widespread demonstrations in the American universities in the 60s and things, uh, the, the administration it just scurried un, un, under the, behind the cloak of the radical students and the radical professors. They didn't actually administer anything. They folded like a $3 suitcase. The one who didn't was that guy Hayakawa in San Francisco, and they elected him a U.S. senator, if you recall. Uh, and, uh, and that was one of the reasons why uh, President, or then Governor Reagan became so popular. Remember, he, he had the main square, the University of California, Berkeley, cleared by the National Guard, 
And uh, when he, I remember he arrived at a trustees meeting and there were huge demonstrations, a double line of state policemen holding them back with their arms locked. And he went along and shook hands with every policeman. And uh, when he went in, he said uh, to the luncheon, a little like this, uh, you, it's on YouTube, you probably, a lot of you have seen it or remember it. He said, uh, I'm sorry I'm late. There were a lot of demonstrations. I saw a lot of signs saying, make love, not war, and they were held up by people that I didn't think could do either. <laughs> so you knew Ronald Reagan. Yes. And he was a great president in many ways. Yeah, a great president. And I'm, as I recall, he said, um, we're only one generation away from losing the vision of freedom. Yeah. So education is important. Of course so it, it is. So it does matter how you answer the question, what is a woman? Is it important? Yes, and, and the, the idea that there's a Supreme Court justice who is in fact a woman and who can't answer the question is, is not a very flattering reflection on current standards. I mean, I'm not saying she's an incompetent justice, and, uh, but she didn't give a truthful answer. Okay. She could say what a woman was, she just didn't choose to do it. So what is going on? What, why, like there's so many people we talk to that are <coughs> frankly confused. I mean, you can't answer a basic question about gender. The DNA? Yeah, I, well, I, I, it's all, isn't it the lack of confidence of the sort of leadership group? So if no one is prepared to say this is bunk and we're not putting up with it anymore, then people, it's like, it's like misbehaving children. If you don't, I mean, look, I'm no, mm -hmm. I was a complete shower as a father, as a disciplinarian. I never told them when to go to bed or anything, but, but, I, but they, they didn't burn my house down or anything or start yeah. throwing dishes or anything. Right. But, but, you know, but if, 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 if people are sort of getting out of control, whether they're children or just childish minds, um, if, if there's no one to say at a certain point, this has got to stop, then they'll, 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 they're, they're will, it won't stop, there'll be no end to it. Yeah. And that's, that's what we're getting into here. I mean, people are afraid to take any position about anything, nobody makes any sense. Oh, you know, I mean, for some reason, I may be unfair here, but I, I, let me put this out to you. Um, on that truckers demonstration last year, when I saw Justin saying on the French television, there were hundreds of miles from Ottawa, he said, they're, they're homophobes, misogynists, uh, I mean, what is he talking about? He didn't know who they were, he didn't know anything about them. And, is it, and none of them were that anyway, you know, as far as we know. But if, if, if this is what we're going to get, that nobody is setting an example of, you know, calling it straight and putting it simply. But, that, but that's what you need. And I, I think there's a, a tremendous ambition to hear that. I don't mean uncaring or excessively autocratic leadership. I mean plain speaking and, and, and dealing in facts. That's what people want. They're ready for it. They're not, they, haven't, they haven't had it for quite a while right on. in this country. Truth matters, doesn't it, Conrad? <laughs> well... <laughs> I, I, the, the, the alternative to that doesn't bear thinking about. Of course, it, it has to matter. But, but if it is, doesn't, nothing does. But this is profound. You've had a front row seat for years on the attack <coughs> on basic truths and evidence, including the attacks on freedom of speech. And without that freedom, what do you have left? Well, we, it, it, it's... Uh, 
severely stunted society of fearful and ignorant people, tyrannized partly by themselves and partly by leaders who exploit them and exploit their fear and incite their fear. Now, we haven't got to that point. I mean, here we are saying things that are deeply disrespectful of the government and policemen are, are charging in and grabbing us by the collar and leading us out and throwing us in paddy wagons. But, you know, it's a free country. We okay, can say what we want. Let's pick up on that. <laughs> well, I, I, you don't mean actually <laughs> replicate it. <I> hope. <laughs> when you look at your story of being indicted on by pro prosecutors in the state of Illinois, Chicago years ago, you went through an awful lot. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable. And uh, it's incredible. I think all those um, charges were dropped, with the exception of one. What happened? <clears throat> um, these people haven't come here to hear a long, and believe me, it could be very long, uh, dissertation for me on that unfortunate episode. But in summary, um, I had a business associate who had misled us all about an acquisition from our company, from our public company. And he, he was pretending that it wasn't actually by him when it was. And this came to light later. And when an activist shareholder complained about the compensation levels, uh, he didn't say that there was anything, any law breaking, he just said the compensation levels are too high, though they were right on the, you know, right on the line level with other companies in our industry of our size. Um, they the, the, uh, the, the asked for what's called in the U.S. a special committee. Well, I thought, that's fine. We've got nothing to hide. You're going to have your special committee. And the special committee unearthed what this guy had done. And then he made his deal with the prosecutors saying, I can give you the, in the way the American plea bargain system works, which every, prosecutors would be disbarred for in this country. But he said, I, I'll get you the big fish if you give me the soft sentence, you see. So they, they, this is what they went after. So he denounced me, and in order to denounce me, he had to denounce our VP legal, uh, VP finance, and the company secretary, because they, were, they would be involved in my supposed wrongdoing. And this was a complete fiction. The Americans throw all the spaghetti at the wall, so I was charged with racketeering. I mean, racketeering, give me a break. Uh, money laundering, uh, all sorts of things like this. And, 17 counts, four were withdrawn, nine were acquitted by the most unsolomonic group of jurors you could find. So there were four convictions which were unanimously, that is to say eight justices, one recused, the former Solicitor General couldn't vote. So, but those who could vote unanimously vacated the four counts. The president gave it to White House counsel Pat Cipollone and Dershowitz went on my behalf and met with him and they went right through it, and the White House legal office said that their recommendation, in the United States you have a pardon of mercy, or a pardon of what's called expungement. If it's mercy, they don't comment on the sense, they say enough is enough, let the, let, 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 you know, it's, you know, it's, that, it's sufficient. But in its, the, the effect of the other kind is, to take the position that it would be better, and as far as the government of the U.S. is concerned, it is the case that the charges were never laid, and that's what was recommended, and that's what the president gave me. Part of this dynamic through that was, it's, it's unbelievable, you served some time in prison, 
and you, you were alluding to that before in our conversation, it's quite remarkable about tutoring inmates. Can you tell us about what you did? I, I have to say that when, and I, the Bureau of Prisons of the United States is one of the most contemptible organizations in the world. And at the time I was a guest of their attentions, they, they changed the director each year for corruption. They're, they're all, you know, they order all this stuff in to feed the prison population. They all take kickbacks. It's an absolute outrage what goes on. But um, uh, I, I have to give them this. They set up the program I mentioned earlier. If you hadn't graduated from high school, they had examinations every month and you were supposed to try to get through. And the inmates, for the most part, thought this was just another racket of this awful corrupt system, so they weren't going to cooperate with it. So because one of my books was in the library, the director of the whole thing said, all right, why don't we have some tutors? For the ones who, can't, who don't pass, we'll, we'll get some tutors. Would, and he asked me to, do, to set this up, so I recruited a... I mean, I, I could do the humanities part, and, and the Haitians, I, they could take it in French, so I could deal with them too. But the uh, mathematics, I, I, I wasn't competent to do that, but I recruited a guy who had been head of mathematics at a large high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, and a very successful commodities trader, and, and really, really was a great mathematician. He had tax problems, that's why he was there. And, the, the, and for the sciences, uh, I got uh, the former commander of the torpedo room of a nuclear submarine. And, and he was a graduate of the U.S. Navy School of Atomic Propulsion. Uh, and and, and he, had, he was one of these geniuses on the internet, and he was accused of hacking people's credit card accounts and things. He denies it. And I, but at least 20% of the people there were no more guilty than I was, so he may have been innocent. I don't know anything about that, but he sure knew science. So if I may say it, we were all pretty well qualified for what we were doing. And, um, and, and I, 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 I would say to them when they'd arrive, they'd come in very surly, and I'd say, look, you know, David, you don't have to do a thing here. I don't care. But just don't disturb the guys who are actually working. If you want to just sit there and read pornographic magazines, perfectly fine. I, I did the New York Times crossword puzzle myself most of the time. But, I, but, um, but it, I'll tell you this. If you want to leave here with your foot on the up escalator and have a chance of going back into the world and making a real living without doing things that lead straight back to a place like this, and if you want to outsmart these people, who, who's, whose whole modus operandi is to flop you back in two weeks after they have to let you out, I can help you. Now, if you don't want it, no problem. Uh, but, you know, the one thing I won't take is, is being treated as if I was part of this system. I mean, I didn't break any laws, but I'm here anyway. I mean, I really do have a grievance. But if you, if you want to do this, I'll help you. But if you don't, that's up to you. Wow. And with this, they all came around. They all, there's nothing wrong with their intelligence. There, with only one or two exceptions, there was nothing wrong with them. They were good guys. So what were your educational results as a teacher? Uh, well, some of them had to take it more than once, but, but I had 204. All 204 of my lads passed, every one. And, and, I, and furthermore, I don't want to be too self-regarding here, but needless to say, the BOP didn't have any information about universities. So I had my office send me some manuals and, and correspondence courses in universities. And I got 10 of my guys started, 
And they all graduated eventually, including, uh, in fact, all but one or two of them started when they were confined and graduated on the campuses. Wow. Uh, so it, it, Unbelievable. Maybe I just say one more thing? Thank you, thank you very much. I, 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 in fairness to the Bureau, I want to say this. They set up a graduation day, and I am not, frankly, a terribly emotional guy, but that was a, a very moving experience, and, and these families, I mean, these guys had never been, you know, they all were from broken homes and, you know, disadvantaged circumstances, e equal, approximately equal numbers of African Americans, white Americans, and Latin Americans. Or Hispanics, and uh, they'd never been told in their whole lives, you know, well done, congratulations, about anything. And their families came, or their girlfriends, or whatever, and they were, they were, it was like a normal graduation. They were proud, they were happy, and it, it, it was, a, it, I have to say, it was a heartwarming experience, and it gave me, I must confess this, a, a much more respectful view of the teaching profession. Because I could see how terribly important it is. Not that I, what I did was important, but how terribly important it is on a, on a society level that, that people be uh, brought forward and, and taught how to learn and how to want to learn and become talented at something. Well said. <laughs> if we could talk about the media, the state. Do we really want to do that? <laughs> Um, well, tell you what, what, what should we do with the CBC? Uh, uh, fire the entire administration, all of them, everybody. Uh, wow, I, 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 a cascade I, of applause through the room. Like I actually, especially in this country where, where we have uh, a much larger neighbor whose media is accessible to us and Canadians watch it, I believe in the concept of a public broadcaster. And, but, and I don't agree with Pierre Poilievre on defunding them. I'd fund them more, but I would require a professional performance that was absolutely exemplary. And, and I would not have the French network just an outlet for separatist propaganda, which is what it's been for the last 40 years. And, and I would not have the English network just essentially a, a, a shilling job for the NDP. And, and, uh, and also the, the denigration of anything in the world that is going on that actually should be approved of, you know. And it, it, it's, it's a nasty, malicious, the CBC is even worse than the rest of the media in this regard, I believe, a nasty, malicious collection of job-protected people uh, we are all in licensed psychiatrists, so I'm going to take slight liberties here, uh, uh, who, who are inflicting upon the dwindling number of people who listen to them or watch them the terrible complexes created by their own shortcomings. They're basically psychologically maladjusted people, most of them. Well, now, now that we're clear about the CBC, um, Let's talk about the... I, I want to say my very best friend is, is a man who spent decades in CBC and is a very fine man and a great professional. And you, you would all be yeah. familiar with him, Brian Stewart. Right. But he, he, is, um, he is a saint among sinners. Yeah. And he can't see it. I mean, some of his friends are absolutely hopeless, but he's, he's a lovely man. Yeah. 
Those are good people. Absolutely. So when we talk about the Twitter files, did Elon Musk buy a crime scene in the sense that as we look at the incredible team of journalists that have examined the Twitter files, and it's been really quite a revelation as we've discovered that there is in fact, uh, we have the receipts, we see all kinds of original documents around the systematic censure by so many US-based agencies, 18 of them to be precise among others, really um, holding back, censoring, cajoling all social media, including legacy media, to tell certain narrative. Like if you think of COVID-19, it's, it's shocking what we, what, what they- uh, And in collusion with the FBI and the CIA. It, it, it is sickening. And so what does that mean? Was that a surprise to you, given your uh, well, experience? Uh, not so much. I mean, you know, when they, when they take the incumbent president of the United States and purport to ban him for life, yeah. while they're running unaltered, uh, the most uh, uh, harem scarum communiques of the Ayatollahs of Iran, for example, I mean, you, you know, you're, it's, you, you know you're, you've got a cesspool there. Mm. I may be slightly surprised at the failure of the FBI and the CIA to disguise at all their 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 role in that. I mean, the one of Thomas Jefferson's greatest, not terribly well-known achievements was setting up West Point to make sure he had a non-political officer corps. Exactly. He didn't didn't want to be like yeah. Latin America, where the generals would take over the government all the time, and and. And that's worked. I mean, the American generals have always been very careful politically. I mean, many of them have become presidents, but not not by misusing their status in the military. Uh, and and um, and and that was the, the entire absolutely uh, assured function of of the intelligence agencies and the FBI. And it is fashionable to heap denigration on J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI and its predecessor organization for 48 years. But J. Edgar never interfered in a presidential election, never. And, uh, and, and, and this, this, this is a, a terrible thing. If it, you know, the two guardrails in the American system were that the court system never changes an apparent presidential election result. And on the other side, they don't indict ex-presidents. And now they've gone through the second guardrail. And the United States is going to have to be careful because if they don't roll back definitively, absolutely, and with a serious disincentive for it to come back, the politicization of the intelligence agencies and the FBI, it is not going to be a real democracy. Uh, I mean, there, and I'm not an alarmist, and I'm, despite the fact that I think I have more reason than most people to have my reservations about that country, I, I am actually rather an admirer of the United States. There's never in the history of the world been so, so successful a country. But, uh, and it's a magnificent country in many ways, as we all know. So noted. So let's look at the state of democracy in Canada. How, how, well, it's, how it, are not we as, doing? It's not, uh, we could put this right easily. I mean, look, we don't have a corruption of the system. The frightening thing is you get the government you deserve. We actually deserve what we're getting, and we should be conscious of that. But we also have the ability to change it. And I, 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 
the, the Canadian problem, uh, I, you know, these are terribly complicated things, and I don't want to be glib about them, but it, it's been a one-and-a-half-party state most of my lifetime. When, when uh, Sir Robert Borden uh, was going to impose conscription, Laurier said to him, look, if you just use your parliamentary majority, it's just the English forcing it on the French. The French have, don't have any mother country feeling for the English because they're not English, or for the French because as far as they're concerned, we're concerned, he said, Laurier, they just deserted us and stole everything but the roofs off our houses on the way in, uh, and, and the, which is pretty much accurate, by the way. And uh, only the clergy stayed behind. And, but if, 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 so if you impose conscription on us, I will lose the leadership of the French Canadians to Henri Bourassa, and Quebec will just be waiting to secede. If you go through an election or a referendum, that will be enough democracy that I can keep the separatists back. You'll win, and he didn't say this to Borden, but he said it to Mackenzie King and Mr. Lapointe, his, his lieutenants, you know. He said, he'll win all right, but the conservatives won't win again for 50 years. And basically, if you look at it, from the next election, it was 1921, until the rise of Brian Mulroney, 1984, 63 years, the Liberals governed for 52 out of 63 years. In my opinion, the problem, the additional problem we had, as, just as a country, was the Conservatives weren't conservative. And they, I mean the federal ones, and, and the Conservative leader, Harper's an exception, but the Conservative leader, even Brian was, I mean, he cracked Quebec, because he's, he's like a French, I mean, his he's, French is better than Chrétien's or John Turner or, you know, anybody except Pierre Trudeau. And, and uh, uh, but, but he, he was a bit of a red Tory. I mean, he was to the right of the liberals, but, he, but you people in the West know that he, I mean, you know, you, he shouldn't have given that airplane contract to Montreal. He should have added, you know, to the group here. And, and uh, so, but now, finally, we have a conservative leader who, uh, who is inspired by, uh, I mean, I've known him a long time, Pierre, uh, by Reagan and Thatcher, and he's going to sell conservatism. He knows they're going to attack him in a fanatical, frenzied way as being harsh and uncaring and nasty and, uh, you know, anti-abortion also. He'll, he'll, he'll knock all that down. He'll make the point that no needy person is going to be deprived of anything they're getting now. But for the rest, he's selling greater liberty for every individual. I'm sure that's what he told you when he packed this house out, or wherever it was. You know, it'll be greater liberty for each individual. You have more control over what you do with your income, with what you earn. And that message, that message will sell. But we haven't had a Canadian who, who has actually sold it like that. Harper was a genuine conservative, but he had, he, he had good luck. It was his turn, and, and, uh, and the Liberals had uh, you know, a lot of problems. He, he, you know, the Bloc had undermined them in Quebec. But he only, I think he had four elections, and he only had a majority once. He was depending on the NDP and the Bloc taking enough from the Liberals. But... Pierre, I think, will get a, a more, a clearer mandate and an unambiguously but enlightened conservative mandate. Very good. So, Lord Black, as we uh, bring our 
far-reaching conversation to a close, I did want to ask you for some advice. As we're citizens gathered today and we've got people watching on Leaders on the Frontier, the program, what advice would you have to Canadians as you look to action? What can we do as citizens as we look to try to renew and move this great country forward? I'm a new citizen, you know. I don't feel qualified. <laughs> I, you know, I, the, the, I'm and just indeed, the, I'm congratulations the, again. I'm the new kid on the block. It's not for me to tell you how to take out the garbage. Um, I, I won't give you advice, but I'll tell you what I'm doing. And I think we can all come to the same conclusion. If we just galvanize ourselves, think it through, don't get distracted by, to quote Mr. Reagan, the hemophiliac bleeding hearts, and, and vote for Poilievre's candidates, I think we'll get a good government, and I, and I think we'll get regime change in the U.S. too. And I think everything will run well for, from then on for at least four years. Uh, you can do a lot. You, you could fix this country up in four years. Well, look, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you, Conrad Black, for joining us here for this very far-reaching conversation, for inspiring us with your insights, for challenging us, and for also sharing something about your personal story. And we want to thank you for your leadership and your courage and for joining us here today. Well, David, I, I, I want to thank you, and I, I want to thank all of you for coming. On, on occasions like this, I always feel that I've spoken too much, but I guess that's what you asked me to do. Uh, and and uh, I have the greatest respect for Frontier College for all the reasons I said. I, I think it's rivaled only by Fraser is the best uh, think tank in the country, and, and you get a lot more out of the budget you have than they do. And, and particularly in this native question, it's very delicate and very difficult. You, you, have, you have been absolute pioneers, and you, you, you are, it may be that there is another think tank as intellectually of high quality as this, but none is as brave as this, and I want to salute you, and I want to add again, it is always a pleasure to be back in Winnipeg. Thank you Thank all very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.